to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. God's wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of His holiness. So we have to to put out of our minds those other images that would turn God into some sort of a vindictive, jealous, monstrous kind of a being. But this is the caricature that is put forth today by some. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Genesis. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Genesis chapter 24 in a message titled, Led by the Lord. Now, here's Pastor Brian. So let's pick up in uh, verse 6. I'll read verses 6 through 14. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and the knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son Isaac. And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh, which means the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, provision shall be seen. So... This prophecy, remember we spoke previously on the fact that Abraham was a prophet. We talked about how his actions were prophetic, especially in this particular incident. But yet we also have here a prophetic utterance from Abraham. And it's a prophetic utterance about the provision that the Lord would ultimately make for man in sin. Remember the words of Jesus regarding Abraham rejoicing to see his day. Jesus said, Abraham saw my day. He rejoiced to see my day. He saw it. He saw it prophetically. 
And Jesus said, and he was glad. I think a consideration of all that the Lord has provided for us in regard to our salvation will make us glad as well. And so that's what I want to do this evening. You know, we have many words in the scripture, particularly in the New Testament, that are so full of significance. And we hear those words, and sometimes we even repeat them. Of course, we read them in the New Testament, but a lot of times we don't really know the full implication of those words. And so that's what I'd like to do, is look at some of these words, some of these terms that actually speak to us about what the Lord has provided for us by way of salvation. And so let's begin with the words ransom and redemption. They are similar words. They're connected. We find these words used in the context of salvation. We find them used many, many times. Redemption is used many times in the Old Testament, many times in the New Testament. And the word ransom especially comes out in the New Testament. These words speak of liberty from captivity or imprisonment or impending death. A ransom is paid. Redemption is secured. You see, the biblical picture, of course, is one of us being held captive. We are held captive by the devil through sin. The biblical picture is one of, a, of us all being shut up in a prison, the prison house of sin. And so there's the necessity of a ransom. A ransom must be paid. Now, maybe you remember Jesus used that exact terminology. He said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. And then Paul tells us in his epistle to Timothy that Jesus Christ gave himself a ransom for all. Gave himself a ransom for all. And so he redeemed us with his blood. We sing that great hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And that's true. And that's what these words imply, that Jesus paid it all. He paid the ransom. And then Paul says in Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption. And the picture in the New Testament of redemption is very specific, especially to the original recipients of these epistles, because uh, redemption would take place oftentimes in the context of slavery. A slave would be put up basically on the auctioning block and then would, would be auctioned off. And there was the possibility that one might purchase a slave for the very purpose of setting them free. And in that particular case, this was known as a redemption. 
So they were redeemed. They were bought out of the slave market. They were purchased out of slavery and and given their liberty. So when we read this word redemption in the scriptures, we have to understand it in its original context. Back in the Old Testament, we learn from uh, the book of Ruth about the kinsman redeemer. The Goel, the kinsman redeemer, the the one who's near of kin, who's able to to purchase that which would otherwise be forever lost. And so a ransom and a redemption. These are the things that are being spoken of in the prophecy the Lord will provide. But then there's this word propitiation. This is a fascinating word, propitiation. It appears four times in the New Testament. And we read in Romans chapter 3 that Jesus Christ has, God has set him forth as a propitiation by his blood. Now, this word propitiation is a word that has a direct relation to the wrath of God, particularly to appeasing that wrath. Now, we really do live in a time when these very clear biblical concepts are just being completely rejected. Not only in the culture in general, but sadly and amazingly, even within the church. And this word propitiation and this idea of propitiation, uh, the picture of of the wrath of God being appeased by, by the sacrifice of Christ, there is an outcry against that in certain segments of the evangelical church today. It's astounding. But it just shows you how man is so resistant to the idea of of a judgment or or a punishment or anything like that. But the scriptures are full of these kinds of pictures. Now, I think it is possible to misrepresent the idea of the wrath of God. And, And as a result of a misrepresentation, people could get the wrong impression and then be, you know, just completely turned off by such an idea to the point of just saying, you know, no, I don't accept that. I don't believe that. But we need to understand what we're talking about when we're talking about the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not to be seen as the capricious, arbitrary, bad-tempered, and conceited anger which pagans attribute to their gods. Nor is it the sinful, resentful, malicious, infantile anger we find among humans. You see, what we so often do is we, we hear of a, of a term and then we interpret it through our own experience or our own understanding. And so because our experience is tainted by sin, then we, we reject the possibility of, 
of God demonstrating wrath because we, we only think of it in the way that's demonstrated by humans. But of course, we have to think beyond that because we're talking about a holy God, a righteous God, a just and a perfect God. God's wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. So we have to, to put out of our minds those, those other images that would turn God into some sort of a vindictive, uh, jealous, monstrous kind of a being. But this is the caricature that is put forth today by some. The doctrine of propitiation is precisely this. That God loved the objects of his wrath, that's us, sinful men and women, so much that he gave his own son to the end that he by his blood should make provision for the removal of his wrath to the end that the children of wrath, who we are by nature, should become the children of God's good pleasure. You see, this whole thing of the, the propitiation is essentially simply what we were acknowledging and celebrating that God poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ. That God punished Jesus in our place, and in doing so, he appeased his wrath against sin. There's another great word, justification. You've heard that word, no doubt. We come across that word several times in the New Testament, most frequently used by the Apostle Paul. It's a great word. We read in Romans chapter 5, having been justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And this word occurs over and over again, especially in Romans, also in Galatians, in Hebrews a bit as well. This is a, a biblical idea that, believe it or not, was completely lost for centuries in the history of the church. And some segments of the church lost it to never, to never find it again. Most of those segments of the church have sort of gone out of existence. But this, this doctrine of justification by faith being, again, as Paul said, having been freely having been justified freely by his grace. This is such a profound idea, but it was literally lost for centuries. And it's the great doctrine that was recovered in what we know now as the Reformation. And it's the great doctrine upon which we stand in the grace of God. But justification, strictly speaking, justification is the judicial act of God whereby those who put faith in Christ are declared righteous in his eyes and free from guilt and punishment. It's a declaration. It's God pronouncing a man righteous. That's the idea. Justification speaks of a change in a man's 
relation or standing before God. It has to do with putting right relationships that have been disturbed by sin. Disturbed by sin. That is what happened. Uh, The relationship that God intended, the relationship that originally existed was disturbed by sin. The relationship was, was severed. And through justification, God puts those relations right again. It is a change from guilt and condemnation to acquittal and full acceptance. Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law and viewing God as a judge. So when we talk about having been justified, we're talking about the the setting is a courtroom. The setting is a judgment seat. And the judge has not only acquitted us, but he has also fully accepted us back into fellowship with himself. In justification, God declares of penitent believers that they are not and never will be liable to the death their sins deserve because Jesus Christ, their substitute and sacrifice, tasted death in their place on the cross. Again, it's the the picture of substitution. It's the picture of Christ dying so we could be forgiven. So we've been justified. We've been declared righteous. Now, here's something that's very important to understand. You cannot improve one iota on that righteousness. The moment you, by faith, receive Jesus Christ and are justified, declared righteous, you are, from heaven's point of view, as righteous as you will ever be, as righteous as you ever could possibly be. Now, that's something that it kind of blows our minds because we don't feel that righteous. We don't look that righteous. But we are. It's important to understand the distinctions that the scripture makes between what we might call our position and just, you know, where we are here on earth, practically speaking. Positionally, Paul would go so far as to say, we are already seated in heavenly places in Christ. But of course, there's the other sense where we're all still down here on earth. But know this, we have been justified freely by his grace. We have been declared righteous. God has wiped the slate clean for us. And he's not holding anything against us. He's not imputing our trespasses to us. Another side of justification is imputation. And what God has done is he has imputed 
the righteousness of Christ to us. So here's the reality from heaven's point of view tonight. You are as righteous as Jesus Christ. You're as righteous as Jesus Christ because God has imputed to you the righteousness of Christ. Now, down here on earth, we're, we're of course, still in this process known as sanctification, where through time and through testing and through growth and development and, you know, a lot of different things, we're being conformed more and more into the image of Christ. But that's not affecting what our position is in heaven. You see, when you blow it here on earth, it doesn't change your righteous standing before God in heaven. But so often what what happens is when we do blow it here on earth, we fall under condemnation. The devil comes in pointing a finger at us. And of course, the strong, strong suggestion that he brings to us is that God no longer accepts us or that God will no longer put up with us or that God will no longer forgive us. But it's not true. That's why Paul would write in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the place. Declared righteous, justified. Now, there's another great word. And this is the word adoption. Adoption, according to one theologian, and I think I agree with him. He said, adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers, higher even than justification. And this is his reasoning. Where justification is a forensic idea, adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. And this is what he says finally. He says, to be right with God the judge is a great thing. To be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater. I agree with him. This is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. You see, we're not simply declared righteous, but we're, we're brought into a full family relationship with God. And the implications of adoption, huge. They're glorious. And now let's join Pastor Brian in the studio as he shares about this month's resource. One of my favorite authors is a man named Mark Sayers, and he's written a fantastic book called A Non-Anxious Presence. And in the book, Mark talks about 
us living in a gray zone. And what he means by a gray zone is that we're living in a time between two eras. One era is passing, but the other era is not completely upon us yet. And that leads to social, cultural, and sometimes even personal disorientation. And so this book is a fantastic book that will help us keep our bearings during this time by keeping our focus on Jesus and what God is doing in the world despite what is going on around us. So a non-anxious presence is my recommendation. I know that you will be blessed by it. Again, this month's resource is a book titled, A Non-Anxious Presence, How a Changing and Complex World Will Create a Remnant of Renewed Christian Leaders by Mark Sayers. You can order the book, A Non-Anxious Presence, by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it, and then click on the Donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book, A Non-Anxious Presence by Mark Sayers, to give you a clear picture of how personal renewal happens after a crisis. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Genesis. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.